Hello, everyone, and welcome to the June 14th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with the Floyd Scarin Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A WCAB panel concluded that an injured worker who had psychiatric symptoms before her award did not preclude her from reopening of her case for new and further disability. In this case, Maureen Ford was injured while employed by the Communications Action Board of Santa Cruz. In 2014, the parties filed joint stipulations with requests for an award for injuries that did not include her psyche. Applicant had, prior to this stipulation, reported psychological symptoms to her doctors, however but none of them expressed an opinion on causation of the psychological symptoms or whether they caused disability. After the stipulated award, Ford filed a petition to reopen in both cases, claiming there was a change in her condition, and she also amended her application, adding psyche as an injury. The case went to trial on the issue of injury to the psyche and good cause to reopen the award. Evidence in the trial included a 2018 report which concluded for the first time that applicant met the requirements for a psychiatric injury because she had a mental disorder per the DSM criteria that was predominantly caused by the industrial injury in 2011. So the work comp judge found psychiatric injury and good cause to reopen and the employer's petition for reconsideration was denied in the panel decision of Maureen Ford versus Communication Action Board of Santa Cruz. The sole issue on reconsideration was the finding a good cause to reopen the award for new and further psychiatric injury and disability where there was evidence of psychiatric symptoms at the time of the original findings and award by stipulation. The defendant argued that because the medical record documents that applicant expressed psychiatric symptoms prior to the findings and award, the psychiatric injury and disability found by the work comp judge now is not new and further. But the WCAB panel noted that in this case, there were only brief mentions of psychiatric symptoms in the medical records. There was no evidence of any psychiatric condition causing either disability or need for treatment, nor was there evidence of a formal diagnosis. Thus, the panel concluded that there was no substantial medical evidence establishing industrial causation for the psychiatric injury prior to the petition pursuant to the labor code requirements. The panel concluded that a psychiatric injury does not fall within the workers' compensation system until it causes either disability or a need for medical treatment and is diagnosed using the terminology and criteria of the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. In this case, the decision was said to be consistent with the outcomes in a number of appeals board panel decisions on reopening to add a psychiatric injury. And the Court of Appeal ruled that a waiver signed by an injured worker who was on a volunteer job 
was enforceable to protect the volunteer employer from liability in a civil court action. Carolyn Matson injured a work, in a work-related injury in 2015 that left her unable to perform the normal duties of her regular employment. During her period of recovery, she was assigned by her employer to work as a volunteer at a food bank warehouse operated by Feeding America Riverside and San Bernardino Counties, Incorporated, as part of a transitional work program. While there, Matson incurred a second injury when she tripped over a wooden pallet on the floor of the Feeding America's warehouse. Matson filed a lawsuit against Feeding America that sought compensation for her new injury based upon theories of negligence and premises liability. The civil defendant alleged as an affirmative defense that prior to participating in any activities, she had executed a written waiver and release of liability, which voluntarily released Feeding America from liability for any future personal injuries arising from negligence. The trial court granted summary judgment in favor of Feeding America based upon the affirmative defense of waiver, but denied summary judgment with respect to the workers' compensation exclusivity defense, which had also been raised by Feeding America. The Court of Appeal affirmed their dismissal in the unpublished case of Matson versus Feeding America Riverside, San Bernardino counties. The Court of Appeal deemed the separate defense of workers' compensation exclusivity waived on appeal and summarized only the evidence and law pertaining to the issue of waiver. They said that an exculpatory contract releasing a party from liability for future ordinary negligence is valid unless it is prohibited by statute or impairs the public interest. However, a release of liability for future ordinary negligence may be invalidated when the court determines that a particular release concerns a service that transcends a purely private agreement and affects the public interest. Additionally, a release of liability for future gross negligence generally is unenforceable as a matter of public policy. In this case, there is no allegation in the complaint of gross negligence. Thus, the issue on appeal was essentially only whether the relationship was one involving a public interest. Back in 1963, the California Supreme Court set forth six factors used to determine if a contract affects the public interest. None of the six factors were present in this case. Thus, the trial court did not err when it declined to hold the release unenforceable as a matter of public policy. There may be a new tool before the WCAB that can be used during adjudication of a petition for reconsideration. It's called a Commissioner's Settlement Conference. In this case, Jeffrey Merlina was awarded disability and further medical treatment against Hartford Fire and Insurance Company, which had previously stipulated to have workers' compensation insurance coverage for the employer. 
At some point, Hartford concluded that the correct carrier for the injury was Zurich American Insurance Company. Hartford then petitioned to have Zurich joined as a party in order to have Zurich assume responsibility for payment of the claim. But the work comp judge declined to join Zurich and to relieve Hartford of its stipulation to insurance coverage. Hartford contended in its petition for reconsideration that the work comp judge erred in not relieving Hartford of its coverage stipulation. Subsequently, at the request of the WCAB panel, applicant and Hartford participate in what they called a Commissioner's Settlement Conference, and Zurich also participated in the settlement conference, even though it had never been joined as a party in these cases. The outcome of the Commissioner's Settlement Conference was that applicant, Hartford, and Zurich agreed to resolve applicants' claims in these cases, and Hartford's potential claim for contribution against Zurich by compromise and release. The WCAB panel thus granted reconsideration and rescinded the findings and award in the panel decision of Molina v. Hartford Fire Insurance Company and approved their compromise and release. The three-member WCAB panel concluded the reconsideration by commending the parties for engaging in good-faith negotiations and successfully resolving the matter without the need for further litigation. Thus, the Commissioner's Settlement Conference may become an evolving tool in workers' compensation litigation on reconsideration to resolve disputes at the reconsideration phase. In a case that would make the federal government reconsider how it classifies marijuana, a lawyer urged a Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal panel to make the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration reassess its 49-year-old position that cannabis has no accepted medical use. The Ninth Circuit includes California. Thus, this case is a, one of significance for the issue in workers' compensation claims in our state. The plaintiff's attorney represents Dr. Suzanne Sizely, an Arizona-based medical marijuana researcher, and three veterans who claim they suffer ongoing harm from the federal government's refusal to reclassify cannabis as a drug with medical benefits. Their Ninth Circuit petition highlights research Dr. Sizely has conducted using marijuana to treat veterans who suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. Despite the fact that medical marijuana is legal in 36 states, the DEA has classified cannabis as a Schedule I drug. That's the most restrictive category, and it's been since 1972. Congress empowered the DEA to decide how drugs should be classified in the Controlled Substance Act of 1970. That was around the same time former President Richard Nixon declared a war on drugs. And a plaintiff's attorney told a three-judge Ninth Circuit panel that the DEA position is, quote, a relic of a bygone era. 
The petitioners argue a five-factor test the DEA established in 1992 to determine if a drug has any medical benefit is arbitrary, leads to absurd results, and contradicts the will of Congress. But most of the Ninth Circuit hearing focused not on the wisdom of the DEA's decision, nor its criteria for categorizing drugs. Rather, it focused on whether the petitioners had standing to bring their challenge in federal court in the Ninth Circuit. That's because Sizely and the veterans are challenging the denial of a petition none of them ever filed. The one-page handwritten petition to the DEA asking it to reclassify marijuana was filed by two people who are not plaintiffs in this case, and that occurred back in January 2020. The DEIA denied the petition four months later, and the two other individuals have two separate lawsuits pending over the denial in the District of Columbia. But lawyers argued it's not unprecedented, and the plaintiffs cited the seminal case in 2007 by the United States Supreme Court, Massachusetts v. EPA, which forced the federal agency to start regulating greenhouse gas emissions to combat climate change. In that case, Massachusetts was challenging the denial of a petition filed by someone else. After 33 minutes of debate, the panel took the arguments under submission, and the decision will be made shortly, and we will all know where we stand. And now our crime report. A federal jury concluded that a former Orange County chiropractor was guilty of defrauding health insurers by submitting $2.2 million in charges for chiropractic services never provided, bonus bogus medical diagnoses, office visits that never happened, and medical devices falsely prescribed. The chiropractor was 56-year-old Susan H. Poon, who lives in Dana Point, and whose office was located in Rancho Santa Margarita. Poon schemed to defraud Anthem and Aetna by submitting false reimbursement claims for services that never occurred, false diagnoses, and chiropractic services that were never performed. Poon also submitted fraudulent prescriptions containing fabricated medical diagnoses of individuals that she had never met, including children causing a medical device manufacturer to submit false claims for reimbursement to Blue Shield of California. The patient victims that Poon claimed to have met with and treated were dependents, such as the spouses and children of Costco Wholesale Corporation and United Parcel Service employees' dependents, whose personal identification information Poon unlawfully took and used in her reimbursement requests and prescriptions. Poon obtained the personal information by attending health fairs at various UPS warehouses and Costco locations and soliciting such information from the employees. In total, Poon billed about $2.2 million through her scheme. Her chiropractic license was revoked back in July of 2019. An August 30 sentencing hearing has been scheduled, 
and Poon will face a statutory maximum sentence of 67 years in federal prison. And in another case, a traffic stop led to the arrest of 24-year-old for a $600,000 EDD fraud. The Sacramento Police Department North Gang Enforcement Team conducted a traffic stop on 24-year-old Adrian Sykes on February 2, 2021 and found him to be in possession of a fully automatic Glock handgun. Officers conducted a probation search of his residence and seized drugs, body armor, and five additional firearms. And the officers also found six Employment Development Department debit cards. At that time, Sykes was charged with six counts of being a felon in possession of a firearm, one count of possessing drugs with a firearm, and one count of being a felon in possession of ammunition. Sykes posted bail on these offenses and was released from custody. The Sacramento County District Attorney's Office, Sacramento Police Department, and EDD conducted a joint investigation into the six EDD cards that were located. They found that Sykes and his girlfriend, 26-year-old Brittany Murchison, had filed multiple fraudulent EDD claims. In total, 35 different fraudulent claims were filed using the personal identification information of victims from across the country, and over $600,000 was illegally obtained. The Sacramento Police Department North Gang Enforcement Team arrested Brittany Murchison for committing EDD fraud. Murchison was charged with 16 counts of EDD fraud and one count of identity theft. Sykes was located and arrested in Las Vegas, Nevada by agents of the Las Vegas Metro Police Department and agents from the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. Sykes is currently in custody in Las Vegas pending extradition to Sacramento where he will face an additional 35 counts of EDD fraud and one count of identity theft. The prosecutors said that law enforcement across the state has witnessed staggering EDD fraud committed by criminals and their accomplices. And in regulatory news, on June 3rd, the Occupational Safety and Health Standards Board readopted Cal OSHA's revised COVID-19 Prevention Emergency Temporary Standards. The changes adopted by the board on June 3rd phased out physical distancing, and make other adjustments to better align with the state's June 15 goal to retire the blueprint. Without these changes, the original standards would be in place until at least October 2nd. However, by June 9, that's six days later, the Occupational Safety and Health Standards Board voted to withdraw the provisions that they voted to approve on June 3rd. The vote was held during a special meeting on June 9 to consider the latest guidance regarding masking from the Centers for Disease Control and the California Department of Public Health. Those revised emergency standards were expected to go into effect no later than June 15. 
but the Standards Board voted unanimously to withdraw the revisions approved on June 3rd that were concurrently currently at the Office of Administrative Law for review but have not yet become effective. Kalosha says it will review the new mask guidance and bring any recommended revisions to the board. The board could therefore consider new revisions at a future meeting, perhaps as early as the regular meeting on June 17. In the meantime, the protections adopted last November will remain in effect. And in medical news, the summer 21 excuse me, the summer 2021 edition of HealthySystems.com, Rx Informer, covers diverse topics, one of which was the future of telemedicine and practical tips to make it effective in workers' compensation. The report claims that telemedicine use, use has increased in response to the COVID-19 pandemic and is gaining acceptance in workers' compensation claims. While some obstacles remain, telemedicine has the potential to expand care delivery options and speed recovery times. According to a recent study by McKinsey, consumer interest in telemedicine rose from 11 to 76 percent during the pandemic, and 57 percent of healthcare providers said they viewed telemedicine more favorably and 64% of providers are comfortable using telemedicine. In the course of just a few months, telemedicine physician visits rose 50 to 175 times, depending on geography and type of practice. In workers' comp, telemedicine also gained wider acceptance during the pandemic, as many states relaxed restrictions regarding its use for injured worker patients. The types of changes made by the states and CMS, which guides rules for some states, vary and include allowing additional services to be delivered by way of teletechnologies, relaxing provider licensing requirements, amending reimbursement rules, often reimbursing at the higher office visit rates to encourage telemedicine, and allowing different modes of technology, such as audio-only calls. Many of the legal and regulatory challenges regarding telemedicine are temporary, and it remains to be seen which will become permanent and where. Many states have allowed in-office reimbursement rates for virtual visits, but exactly which medical services can be effectively delivered through telemedicine is yet to be determined. Currently, fewer than 100 medical services are approved for telemedicine by CMS, which is a small fraction of the 8,000-plus services covered by Medicare and Medicaid. The number of medical services commonly seen in workers' comp are much fewer, and while some services will always require that the provider and patient be physically together, a significant portion of injured worker care could be potentially delivered virtually. But telemedicine is not appropriate for all medical services. Serious injuries and illnesses demand in-person attention, and most diagnostic tests and all surgeries require physical contact with the patient. 
In addition to these obvious exceptions, some patients may feel that they are not getting proper care with a telemedicine visit and prefer to see their health care provider in person. There are also important privacy concerns and fear of fraud in both general health care and workers' comp. Merck announced it has entered into a procurement agreement with the United States government for its new drug, Molnupiravir, is currently being evaluated in a phase 3 clinical trial for the treatment of non-hospitalized patients with laboratory-confirmed COVID-19 and at least one risk factor associated with poor disease outcomes. If Molnupiravir receives emergency use authorization or approval by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, Merck will receive about $1.2 billion to supply approximately 1.7 million courses of the new drug to the United States government. Merck has been investing at risk to support development and scale-up production of the drug and expect to have more than 10 million courses of therapy available by the end of 2021. Merck also plans to submit applications for emergency use or approval to regulatory bodies outside of the U.S. and is currently in discussions with other countries interested in advance purchase agreements for the drug. Merck intends to implement a tiered pricing approach based on World Bank data that recognizes countries' relative ability to finance their public health response to the pandemic. Merck has also entered into a non-exclusive voluntary licensing agreement for Malvupinir with established generic manufacturers to accelerate availability in 104 low-income and middle-income countries following approvals or emergency authorization by local regulatory agencies. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, our podcast, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd Skarn, Minuki, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.